This episode contains details of violence and domestic abuse and may not be suitable for all listeners. If you do need help with any of the issues raised, please look at the show notes for details of confidential support. You're listening to This Is My Story. I'm Ruth O'Reilly-Smith. This show is all about sharing stories of how God's amazing love has changed lives forever. Today's episode is with Natalie Collins, activist, author, and survivor of domestic abuse, who endured a traumatic experience at the hands of her first husband. Her story begins in her late teens. I felt very much that my virginity was the thing that defined me as different to my non-Christian peers. And it was this thing that made me, you know, uh, you know, on fire for Jesus. And and it's really interesting because you'd think it's not that long ago. And and actually, a lot of people who are adults might be thinking, oh, well, I can see that that might be what you might come to a conclusion of. But that's not really the norm. But I'd say for a lot of particularly girls, I think it does become the norm. And so when at 17, I I met a boy, um, you know, that it's not a an unusual story and he was beautiful and he'd he I met him through a friend and she said he'd recently become a Christian and I, oh he ticks the box that's it and then I said to him I don't believe in sex before marriage I'm a Christian and Jesus loves you it was immediately my you know my approach <laughs> and I thought that's all I need to do the end there we go 100% off Christian teaching I'm living it out as Natalie would soon find out the conversations with her boyfriend about respecting her virginity would fall on deaf ears Within 12 days, he'd manipulated and coerced me into having sex with him. At the time, the, I felt really terrible. And, and now I look back and know that that was because he was he was sexually abusing me. But the, at the time, I presumed the reason that I felt bad was because I was betraying Jesus. And the only way at 17, 12 days into a relationship, the only way that I can solve this is by being with him forever. I'll just have to marry him. As time went on, things seemed to escalate as Natalie's boyfriend began to exert control over her. He was deliberately using um, sex as a way to control me. And so within six months, I'm pregnant. By the time I was 18 and a half, I was married to him. Um, and, and, and then I was, I was in that situation for four years. I was with him for four years. He um, was very, very damaging to me. He controlled me. He made me think that I was worthless, that I was stupid, ugly, fat, that everything he did wrong, that that was my fault, that if I just loved him enough, if I just forgave him enough, then God would save him and it would all be wonderful. Despite the hidden nature of domestic abuse, there were a number of public signs that Natalie's now husband was abusive. He had been convicted of of offences against teenage girls by the time he was 19. We were both the same age. Um, And so people did know there was something wrong, but actually people didn't see necessarily that he was abusive to me or didn't see me as a victim. They saw the girls that he'd abused as being victims. And I felt I had to stay with him even after he was convicted because I thought, well, maybe God can now save him and I can forgive him and it'll all be okay. In fact, even through this ordeal, Natalie struggled to come to terms with describing herself as a victim of abuse. I just thought, oh, it's it's a difficult relationship and he had all these problems and, and it was just he was struggling and maybe if I didn't wind him up. 
But in the end, when I was 21 and I was uh, six months pregnant with my son, he assaulted me and my son was born three months premature. And it was through that situation that I was able to escape because we ended up living in a hospital about an hour from our hometown with my two and a half year old daughter and my premature baby. And it was literally that physical separation. It wasn't that I became some sort of strong woman who could make better decisions. It wasn't anything like that. It was just, I can't physically be in the same town as him. This would be a crucial moment, allowing Natalie the opportunity to think through her situation and eventually contact the authorities. It took about a month of um, my son being in hospital for me to make a decision to report him to the police. Um, and at that point, obviously, <laughs> there were various people who became aware that there was a problem. Everything was stripped away. I was living in a hospital with a two and a half year old with this baby that kept on nearly dying. Um, he was um, two pounds six when he was born. He went down to less than a kilogram um, at his smallest. And he was really, really poorly for, um, we were in hospital for five months in total. Um, and I moved out of the house that I'd shared with my then husband. Um, I moved all my stuff into a pa my parents' garage. And so I'd lost everything. I didn't have a home. I didn't have um, any co any assurance that my child was going to live. I had a two and a half year old who was clearly very traumatised. Um, and I was going through a court case. In the middle of this incredibly challenging time, God showed up in Natalie's life in a way that she could never have expected. In that place when I lost everything, um, the, the, the living God who I'd heard about my whole life and had had this kind of under belief in and understanding of, but actually I heard this God start to speak to me and God said to me, in the first instance, God said, you need to stop praying for your son to live and you need to pray for my will to be done and I need to know that you love me the same this week if he's alive as next week if he's not. I... I, th I kind of was in that situation thinking, can I do that? Can I, you know, this this living God that I've spent my whole life being told is amazing was, um, you know, was not giving me any hope, was it going, don't worry, I'll be a magical fairy godmother, I'll come along and fix everything and if you trust me, then everything will be wonderful at the end. And that's not what God said. And it's interesting because my entire understanding of God up until that point is that's what God did. If you just loved enough and forgave enough, then that was a formula for things going how, how you wanted them to um, and so in that in that hospital I chose to trust God and to be obedient to God and to follow God regardless of what it cost me. My son is now 13 and uh, praise God he did survive um, and, and, and my daughter's 16 and, and both of them are amazing. But even after beginning criminal proceedings against her abusive husband, she still struggled to completely break free of him. It'd be lovely to go, oh yeah, no, he became totally reformed and it's all been wonderful. That's not what, what, what occurred. Um, when I left him, he um, I reported him to the police. Um, during the time where we were going through the court case, he manipulated me into various types of contacts with him, including sleeping with him. It is very confusing because obviously I'd been assaulted. He'd caused my child to be premature. And actually then I'd reported it to the police. But then I still ended up in a situation where I then after that, after that situation, slept with him. 
I was in a highly vulnerable state with a premature baby. And at the time, the only person that I thought deserved to hear me moaning about the situation, because that's how I perceived it. I didn't see it as actually like, I've been through a lot and people should want to support me. It was like, oh no, to inflict myself on other people is too terrible a punishment. Therefore, the only person who deserves to listen to me is him. And so, you know, when we're, when we have a, a sick child, we want the father of that child to be involved in that. And, and his part of the abusive behavior was him being very indifferent and being very uncaring and so any any form of attention was something that I felt like oh this maybe he does care. Natalie had to make some bold moves to distance herself from her abuser. I moved to a different part of the country because I knew that if I went back to my hometown, I wouldn't be able to stop myself. I wouldn't have any control. Um, so I, I God told me to move to the northeast. So I moved up there. I didn't really know anybody. The people that I did know moved away quite quickly. So I was living with two small children on my own. I was 21 at this point. But it was a really healing time for me, just being on my own with the kids, building really strong relationships after so much trauma. Um, and then uh, God called me to move to Essex. So I moved down to the south of England. And, and, you know, I just decided in that hospital, when God tells me to do something, I will do it. A lot of it was about being physically removed from that situation. And it was also about starting to build that relationship with God but also I was referred to a program that was for women who'd been subjected to abuse that was run by a local women's service and it was through that service that I started to use the label abuse to describe my ex-husband's behaviour. God would continue to speak to Natalie as she journeyed on her road to recovery and restoration but one thing she did not expect was to hear God tell her who she should marry. And so God said, you know, you need to marry this guy. And I was like, no, I'd known him for like six years. It wasn't that weird, like stranger, like you need to marry this stranger. I'd known this guy for six years. He was friend of a friend and uh, I ended up marrying him. We've been married for over 11 years now. His name is Andrew. He's the absolute best person that I could have been married to. He's he's absolutely brilliant. He is full-time at home with the kids so that I can do the work that I do. He does all the administration. I'm really blessed that God has given me um, somebody who so who resources and supports me and loves me so wonderfully. So it, it is really wonderful, but it, it was that journey of actually, you know, deciding to have a relationship with somebody that I hadn't really chosen for myself. Yeah. And it has been that attitude of trust in God first that has sustained her in the years since her ordeal. It has been about letting the God of Christian culture die and the the God of creation and the living God come alive. Um, and a lot of that has meant about not only dying to those expectations, but also uh, there's a lot of d- death to self, um, a lot of dying to my own assumptions and what I wanted and, you know, choosing to marry somebody that I didn't really want to marry, you know. So it's not it's not a case of that that you follow God and, and everything just becomes magically wonderful. We've had so many challenges um, and, and challenges continue. Um, but I think for me, the, the God who demands everything of us and, and asked me to give up everything, to give up even the hope that my child would survive – that God is is worth giving up everything for because at the other side, when you give up all that stuff at the other side, there's this powerful liberation that you can't even imagine. And I, uh, you know, it talks about there being, uh, you know, J- Jesus's yoke 
being easy and the burden being light I almost uh, had this vision of like a you're carrying this massive rucksack around and it's packed full it's like going around like you know it's like you're three people wide with this rucksack and it's massive and it's heavy and it's got all your stuff all your value everything that's important to you and you come you're walking along and and God says right you need to go through this tiny crevice and the only way to get through it is to take off the bag when and your your shoulders are all cut and from from drag carrying this really heavy bag and and you have to take it off and you have to climb through this crevice not knowing what's on the other side and thinking I can't leave all this this is all the stuff this is all the stuff that I've I've served God with this is all the stuff that helps me to know who God is etc etc and uh, and actually climbing through this crevice and leaving that behind that you don't know what's on the other side but it is through giving up on all our expectations on our understandings a lot of the time and choosing the God who is everything who asks us to give everything but in order that we might find everything and it is so um, crazy and mysterious and counter what you you know counter any sort of rationality but on the other side there is this liberation and, and God can provide us with everything we need and it may not be the things we think we need but when we get there we discover wow this is mm. this is more than I could have ever asked or imagined. So how do we reconcile the need to forgive those who've harmed us with the need to escape an abusive relationship? You have this idea that forgiveness is you just wipe the slate clean. And that, that description of forgiveness is, is of God's forgiveness to us. But if someone chops off my legs, it doesn't matter how much I forgive them. I'm, I've got no legs for the rest of my life, you know. And, and, and similarly, we need to see emotional harm or psychological harm. That Sometimes the only way that we can be safe is to not remain in relationship with somebody, is, is to cut that, that person off. And that's not about being unkind or unforgiving. It's about recognising that there are consequences to behaviour. A useful passage, I think, to talk about forgiveness is to look at how Joseph forgave his brothers, that when Joseph's brothers um, approached him, um, Joseph didn't go, oh, let me give you a hug. He tested them to see how they would treat his younger brother, Benjamin, this this brother who who represented the same sort of position in the family as he did. And only when he was sure that his brothers were going to protect Benjamin did he become vulnerable to them. And so we have a model there that says that forgiveness doesn't necessarily mean we have to immediately become vulnerable to somebody who's hurt us. In the light of everything that Natalie has endured, she's now dedicated herself to activism, fighting for justice for other domestic abuse survivors. She's also passionate about resourcing the church and organisations to help them spot early signs of abuse. Most people are familiar with the Me Too movement and we've seen the church really start to open up to the fact that there is a problem in the church. We've started to see um, equality as something that the church, not everywhere, but is starting to go, oh, this is a this is something we should be dealing with. And I've been re- working on issues around um, domestic abuse and male violence, sexual violence, pornography, lots of topics. Nobody really finds me fun at a dinner party, it has to be said. <laughs> Natalie's work now is to shed some light on the experience of domestic abuse survivors addressing misconceptions that many people have. Inevitably, the question comes, oh, well, wh- why why don't these women just leave? Um, and it immediately, uh, you know, the first thing is, there is no such thing as these women. 30% of women will be subjected to abuse by a partner. So these women are your sisters, your friends, people in your church. They're your, the teachers of your children. So there's no such thing as these women. And if we could just leave, we would just leave. 
there's a physiological thing called traumatic attachment. It used to be called Stockholm Syndrome. People are often familiar with it in terms of kidnapping or hostage taking, where um, somebody is kidnapped and they have opportunity to escape and they don't. And, and what it's about is that humans were made for attachment. Both scientifically we know that, but also theologically we were made for love. We were made for relationship with God and with other people. And what happens is when we are with someone who's abusive, one of the tactics of an abuser is to isolate us from anybody else. Um, and so if you if you have a friend or family member and you think, oh, I don't have any relationship with them, and that very much coincided with the start of a new relationship, be aware that there could be more going on. And so, um, so once we're isolated from everyone else, when we are threatened, when any human being is threatened, the first need that they will try to meet is to remain attached to something. The theory around breaking traumatic attachments is it takes about a year with no contact, including third-party contact. And if you think about how the church is set up, it's set up to forgive, it's set up for relationship counselling and all the sorts of things that push people back into relationship rather than saying, actually, this is going to be really dangerous. We should be trying to um, detach rather than remain attached where there's abuse. Many churches are now actively looking inward to see how they can improve their response to domestic abuse victims. So we have to start having really important conversations about sex, about what it means to be a woman and a man. We have a particular understanding of masculinity um, where, you know, those who are responding to la the lack of men in church talk about, you know, that we need to, the church is feminised or it's too romanticised and, you know, women are all obviously the problem even though men are mainly doing the leading of it. Um, you know, let's get some bear wrestling and it'll all be fine. And that model of masculinity is really, really harmful. Um, the, the reason why there are less men than women in the church is not because women have tainted the church with their, you know, ladiness. <laughs> It's because the, ch the, the, the gospel message is one that requires weakness and vulnerability and masculinity at its core says you've got to man up, you've got to have it all together, you need to be responsible, be a breadwinner, don't be weak, don't be vulnerable. If somebody's listening to this and hearing things that I said about isolation or about being devalued or being controlled or um, things like being exhausted by a partner or being, there may be physical violence, there may be sexual violence, there may not be. Um, and they're listening to this and thinking, oh, like actually my my current partner, my current husband or or, or um, boyfriend or girlfriend or whatever it is, is behaving in ways that actually sounds like that. The first thing to do is, it's really scary to use the word abuse, to label this thing abuse. But until we are willing to recognise that's what's going on, it's very difficult to access any help. So it may take months, it might take weeks or days just to get to the point of saying, actually, this has that label abuse because the label is so scary. But actually, the truth will set us free. And when we start to acknowledge it, is denial is one of the biggest strategies we use when we've got an abusive partner. Um, and so we have to be willing to overcome that denial. So the first stage is acknowledging this is abusive behaviour. And then the next step is getting access to local support. So every if you um, if you Google domestic abuse uh, and your local area name, um, and if you've got an abusive partner, they may be controlling um, the access to technology. So they might need to do that in a library or on a friend's phone or something. But basically finding the details of the local service and contacting the service and, and saying, actually, I'm really concerned of what's going on. If there's any illegal behaviour, reporting that to the police is really, really helpful but that's a big step for people. What if you suspect you may yourself be an abuser? 
One of the first things that you need to do is recognise that what you're doing is a choice. It's not something you don't have control over. It's something which is done to control. And so recognising it's a choice is, you know, nobody makes you do anything abusive. You choose to do those things. The second thing is that when somebody's abusive, they think that their partner is incapable of making good decisions. They think that their partner is irrational. So the second thing to do is to realise, actually, my partner is a competent human being. And the third thing to do is, again, it's about recognition. This is abusive um, and accessing help. This is my story with Natalie Collins, author of the book Out of Control, Couples, Conflict and the Capacity for Change. If you need help with any of the issues raised in this episode, please look at the show notes for details of confidential support. Make sure you share and subscribe. And to hear more podcasts from UCB, you can download the UCB Player app or search UCB wherever you get your podcasts.